0: This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. Circumstances require me to begin on a sad note. Defender of the permanent things and longtime editor of the University Bookman, Gerald Rossello, passed away this past weekend, a great loss to us all. His numerous essays and book reviews appeared in a wide range of publications. He was also the author of the Postmodern Imagination of Russell Kirk. Gerald was universally loved and admired. He and I were online friends for many years and exchanged emails and instant messages over a long period of time. But we never had the opportunity to meet in person, and that's something I regret. But I very much look forward to seeing him in eternity. May perpetual light shine upon him. Our poem is from Thomas Hardy. At Day Close in November The ten hours light is abating And a late bird wings across Where the pines, like waltzers waiting, Give their black heads a toss Beech leaves that yellow the noontime float past like specks in the eye i set every tree in my june time and now they obscure the sky and the children who ramble through here conceive that there never has been a time when no tall trees grew here that none will in time be seen As always, please do take a moment to leave a five star rating on Apple Podcasts or your platform of choice. A positive review is also helpful. I would direct you to the Cultural Debris Patreon for those who would like to help support the podcast. An ongoing thanks to those who are Cultural Debris patrons. A listener identifying himself as the Yellow Dart 82. Wrote some kind words in a recent review at Apple Podcasts. He says about cultural debris, engaging and refreshing. A relaxed and comfortable cultural pace compared to much of the noise in our daily lives. Relax, pull up a chair, and enjoy the show. And I hope that is exactly what you do in this episode. Our guest is Alan Noble author of the new book, You Are Not Your Own, Belonging to God in an Inhuman World, from IVP, the InterVarsity Press. Dr. Noble is a professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University and a founder of Christ and Pop Culture. Join us. I think you'll enjoy the discussion. noble welcome to cultural debris i am i am
1: is it debris or debris
0: uh well i say debris but i'm from eastern kentucky so i don't know what sophisticated people are supposed to say
1: i say debris too okay just wondering yes i'm excited to be here i'm excited great.
0: great you you are coming to us all the way from oklahoma this is you are our first oklahoma guest
1: Am I the debris? I'm just thinking about this right now. Am I the debris here? And the, what's the analogy? Well, you know, I've never really broken it up like that, but uh, I'll have to.
0: I'll have to think about that. So, uh, in other words, maybe. I, I'll I'll answer that question at the end of the interview.
1: Good. Uh, <laughs> so, yes, I, I w- <laughs> I'm from Oklahoma to answer your question. Yeah, I'm, I will not. I'm I'm from Southern California. But well, I was going to say, you know, you're you you are in Oklahoma.
0: I am in. in so in Kentucky, there's a, there's a very hem- heavy emphasis on where you're from. Mm. Um, so I am from Clay County, Kentucky, which is in southeastern Kentucky. And that's where I grew up. My parents still live there and so forth. So even today, if somebody asks me where I'm from and all they really want to know is, do I live in Lexington, which is where I've lived, you know, for some years.
1: Mm. That's
0: all they want to know. But but I, I have sort of, you know, this this crisis. Well, I'm, I'm really not. You know, I live in Lexington. I'm really not from there originally, mm. and so I just, you know, I feel this obligation to tell them more about my uh, the history of where I've lived than they have any desire to know. But anyway, you you are going with with modern uh, acceptance. You're from Oklahoma, kind of.
1: My voice right now is from Oklahoma. Yeah, <laughs> Correct. that's a neat. I mean, I'm glad that you know that people are are curious to know because. It is. I mean, it's true. It's part of my story that I'm from Southern California. The first 22, 23 years of my life, I lived there. And that shaped me. And especially because I'm from the desert of California, where there's a lot of aerospace. It's a very conservative sort of pocket in Northern Southern California. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was. Yeah. Very evangelical, very conservative because of aerospace and an Air Force base right there. So, um, yeah that that shaped me a lot and for for a while i was thinking you know can is there a way i can move back home um because you know place is important and so i like the fact that you still identify with your home county that's 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 neat that's good
0: well yeah in in kentucky everybody uh, typically unless you're from lexington or louisville the sort of our two from our perspective large cities uh everybody pretty much identifies with the county they're from because where, where I grew up, I, I grew up like 10 miles outside of the, of the, uh, county seat, uh, of Manchester. So, you know, I always considered like Manchester people and this is a town of, you know, when I was growing up about 2000, hmm. uh, I always considered Manchester people like city people, you know, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I lived, I lived out, out in the uh-huh. country. It's not, yeah. not like, you know, in the, in the, the, the mean streets of Manchester, but, um, it's, it's an, it's an interesting, uh, I guess it, it, idiosyncratic approach to where you're from, but everybody just, uh, and there are 120, uh, Kentucky counties. We have, we're, we have, uh, I think we're third, second or third, uh, on actual number of counties in this, in that the state has. And so we, you know, sort of, the, they're sort of hyper local in a way. So it kind of, it pinpoints you uh, to a degree that maybe it wouldn't in, in a lot of, uh, a lot of other states. So
1: can you but name places, all places. 120? Uh,
0: when I was in elementary school, I remember there was an assignment for that. Wow. And, um, <laughs> I, I don't, um, I right now I, I couldn't do it. Uh, okay. I could name a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, and I've been to most of them, but th- there are still a few that are sort of out of the way that I've, that I've not made it to. And, you know okay. who, who knows? So you know, some people want to go to all fifty states in Kentucky. You you, you need to go to all hundred twenty counties, <laughs> <laughs> or can you really call yourself a Kentuckian at all? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know but so I had, I had a question for you up on uh, on perusing your book, and that is, do you have zucosis? Because I, I in reading it, I, I think that I might.
1: Yes. And, you know, when I use that analogy, so that so the zookosis for your listeners is the sort of uh, informal term. It was made up by an, an animal rights activist to describe that that scenario where a caged animal paces endlessly for hours, for days. And when you go to the zoo, I, I usually see this with bears or lions. Um, there'll be like a path. And it's very clear that this animal is moving in this specific path. All day, every day, um, and so uh, it's a, psych- a psychosis for for zoo animals. And the the thing that's bringing it up, uh, bringing it on is the fact that they're in an environment that is not actually designed for them. Which I found an interesting thing because, you know, the whole idea that, the you know, a, a zoo habitat would not be designed for an animal. Well, actually, it is literally designed for that animal. In fact, some of the best uh, people who are experts at whatever this animal is, this lion, this bear, have gotten together and worked to design this habitat. So it is, in a sense, designed for them. And yet, from the bear's perspective... It's really not. It's still fundamentally a foreign place, and because of that, it creates these anxieties. Where this hit, where this uh, concept really hit me to answer your question was when I heard how. Um, I'll, maybe zoologists. I, I always want to say zookeepers, but that feels too Dr. Seuss. Uh, I don't know <laughs> if that's the right word, but those who keep bear keepers anyway. So uh, they treat them with enrichment activities, which would be like, let's say a weighted <laughs> ball or something like that to distract them or antidepressants. And when I discovered that, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm that's me that's literally what society does with me. I come to society and I say, I'm not, I'm not functioning well. This, this environment does not feel right to me. There's some deep fundamental problems I'm, I'm experiencing. And society says, well, have you tried, you know, watching this show? Have you, have you tried some antidepressants <laughs> right. and maybe, maybe that'll fix it. Um, but, but in both cases, what I find interesting is that when you're at the zoo and you see these animals and it's very clear at this is not how this animal is supposed to live and they're suffering because of it, right? No, Almost none of us say, well, uh, I guess things need to change. Instead, what we say is, well, you know, what are you going to do? It's a zoo. We got to have them. So we just got to deal with it. We'll just give them the antidepressants. And it seems to me that that's often our reaction to an environment that is not made for humans as well. As we look at it and we say, but this is not working. Well, what are you going to do? It's the modern world
0: it it's kind of like uh the the animal wakes up and finds itself in its own sort of zoological truman show it's it's in a it's in a set that's supposed to be like home but things just somehow they're not quite they're not quite what it seems like there are you know maybe the an animal moves in for a brief period of time and then they disappear where did they go you know what uh, what happened to them yeah. and uh and, and when i get close too close to the edge i'm i'm prohibited from leaving so um <laughs> yep we're 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 all trapped they're all trapped in in a uh, in, in a zoological truman show we're we're kind of the same way but but of our own making and i guess own not personal making although there's some right. of that but but you you argue in your book and by the way we're talking about your new book you are not your own uh, that you argue in your new in your new book that that kind of society has modernity, I guess we might say, mm-hmm. has created a, a a false environment for us.
1: That's right, because uh, society is is creating this environment um, from a faulty assumption about what it means to be human. So now to be clear, I'm not, I'm not, um, I think somebody could make this argument, but I'm not actually blaming any, any group or any specific agenda. What I think, what I think is most likely is that just collectively through various reasons and for various reasons, um, we've elected to make this kind of environment for ourselves, which is, which is not healthy, but nevertheless, um, so you're you're saying that you're not saying that this came out of like the Davos conference, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, you know, I I suspect often that just our our own propensity towards vice and um, market forces can be enough of an explanation. You don't actually have to have a cabal to to pull something, you know like this off it just it just can happen um so uh yeah so when you any society as it's as it's setting up its laws its practices its values its habits um its aesthetics um, it, it's going to do so based on a conception of what it means to be human because that society ought to be uh, created in order to uh, encourage and facilitate human flourishing. Whatever human ends are, that society should help protect and promote and and equip someone to, to reach those ends. So what we mean by human, what we understand the experience of being human to be is going to shape how we set these things up. And so the theory I'm offering in the book is that Contemporary society, and you can absolutely say modernity, assumes that to be a human being is fundamentally to be your own, to belong to yourself. Um, this is the the basic state of being human, and and that's similar to you know when people talk about individualism. Um, but I but I want to say that it, it it even has a a more um, existential element to it. To 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 be a person is is to be alone in that sense, to not belong to anyone but yourself.
0: Well, some critics have, uh, not critics of your book, but critics in general, some critics have uh, have referred to sort of an atomization using that kind of language. And that seems to be uh, really what you're talking about, that I'm just, uh, it's just, it's me, it's me in the universe kind of thing.
1: Yes. Yeah, that is fair. That is absolutely a way of, of understanding it. And we do elect and choose to uh, bind ourselves with other people and other groups, but it's always, um, as this philosopher Zygmunt Bauman calls, um, "until further notice." So, you know, I'm 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 bound to my wife until further notice, until I decide somebody more interesting or attractive or with more social capital comes along. Um, you know, I'm, I'm bound to my children until I get sick of them and disown them or whatever, or they do the same to me, right? I'm bound to my work or to my community or to creation or to God until further notice.
0: So we're living in a, in a constant state of negotiation, as it were, there's nothing is ever really settled because I don't know, you know, the, the new improved model of whatever may come along and I need that
1: yeah that's an interesting way of negotiation As I'm, just, I'm just reflecting think about how much how how much of our conversation in, you know in the quote unquote public discourse surrounds people negotiating relationships and boundaries and limits and and, and you know uh defining relationships and things and consent and and such now, which i'm not i'm not necessarily criticizing i'm just pointing out that that if we do live in what what Bauman calls liquid modernity, where things are fluid, then a negotiating and defining terms becomes incredibly de- important because there are no natural bounds. There are no natural limits and bonds. Everything's negotiated. So that means negotiation becomes really important, and it will take up more and more space in our, in our public life. I want to get back to
0: to that, so hold that thought. I, but yeah. one of the things that I, I definitely I did want to address because you know we're told not to judge a book by its cover, but I was I was intrigued by your your sort of multiple I guess what I would call Sisyphuses who were <laughs> who were who were pushing pushing the the O's <laughs> on, yeah. on the cover of your book uh, and and of course you use use that as a motif uh, on your chapter headings as well. So what what is uh, what are these uh, These um, Sisyphean O's telling us.
1: So there are a couple of get
0: into the book.
1: Yeah, there are a couple different. So uh, first of all, the 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 cover designer was fantastic, Um, and he he did an amazing job. Uh, He I did not think of that idea, but I'm really glad he did because I feel like I I just want the book to be good enough to reflected the, the cover art so there are a couple of of ways you know one i'm talking about uh, camus idea of you know um, imagining sisyphus happy and 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 for him he's describing this world where we no longer have god to orient us to give meaning to our life or to 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 tell us that there is such a thing as meaning um there is such a thing as you know human nature for example and um in instead we're living in this absurdity this contemporary world is an absurd world where we have to project meaning onto things we have to assert the meaning and it is in a sense like pushing this uh boulder up a hill um, but, uh, Camus argument is that we, we should be able to imagine Sisyphus happy. And one of the things I mentioned in the book is that, well, Sisyphus remains in Hades, So, I, 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 I don't think Camus answer is actually su- sufficient. Um, um, but what he's tapping into, I think is an essential part of this experience. Um, and that's this, if we are our own and belong to ourselves, the exciting Part about that. The liberating part of that is that I get to define who I am. I get to determine the life I want to have, uh, and all these sorts of con- modern, liberal, liberating uh, uh, um, sayings that we'll have, right? And so I'm not confined by my my body, my I, my traditional identity, my tradition, my family, my place. None of these things define me. I define myself. So that's the liberating part. But the flip side is that you have the burden of carrying this. Uh, existence on your own. There's no one else that can push that boulder up the hill, and so I, that image of Sisyphus, I think, is helpful for describing the what I call the burdens of self or the responsibilities of self belonging, which are our challenge today. If we assume this false anthropology, that's our challenge. Um, so it, it, it represents that. The other the other part of it is a much more um, Experiential. uh, And that is that part of I'm trying to address in the book, the experience that many contemporary people have, certainly friends, myself at different times of just uh, the weariness, the weariness, the absurd weariness of contemporary life, where it seems like I'm pushing this boulder of whether, whether it's bills or emails or things that I'm neglecting or whatever it is up this hill. A lot of it seems meaningless. And then I wake up the next morning and I go back to pushing
0: that's the, I guess, in a sense, sort of the, a a different version, maybe a more sophisticated version of the hamster wheel (laughs) idea. You know, we're just, we're just trapped in this this wheel. We just keep running. Uh, But, but you say in your, in your introduction that, that over time, Westerners began to think of themselves as actually sovereign, that is sovereign of ourselves. But Mm -hmm. we, with that, rather than the liberation that we're so often sold. And we think maybe back to the sixties and the, lib- the sexual re- liberation and so forth. Yeah. That, um, that it, that it really becomes or has become, it's not some, it's, this is not a, it's not a question of whether or not it will, but it has become this uh, this thing that's weighed us down to the point where w- we, we clearly do aren't functioning well with it, you know, we're, <laughs> right. we're we like you said, we, we're, we, we feel this meaninglessness. Uh, we, uh, you, you know, I, I don't recall that you, that you discussed this directly, but, but the idea of boredom that we just have this yeah. sort of sense of boredom. Um, and, And then, as you point out, everybody is self-medicating, and you use that in in kind of a broad sense. But everyone is self-medicating in some sort of way to cope with this sovereignty uh, that's supposedly freedom but is actually sort of soul-crushing to us.
1: Right, and so you know, there's there's so many examples that you can pull from to to understand this. So you know, Milton's Satan, I think, is is you know a classic example of this, right? He, uh, he, he'd he'd rather uh, rule in heaven than, uh, excuse me, rule in hell than serve in heaven. Um, so the idea of being. What he perceives to be limitless—I can do whatever I want down here because this is my kingdom—but it's it—it uh, it is not actual freedom. So actual freedom is is being rightly ordered uh, toward. Toward God, which sets some limits on you, but but it it is freedom. And that's difficult for us to understand. But there's this dynamic you can see this dynamic all over the place. So for example, one way of thinking about it is um, that the more choices you have in any one uh, situation or scenario, the harder it is to make a choice and to be satisfied with that choice. Um And so, you know, if you go down a, you know, the, the cereal aisle and you look at all of these choices available to you, it can create a kind of anxiety. Like I, maybe I'm just not going to get anything. Whereas if there are three to five choices, you're probably going to feel more confident and be able to make your choice easier. Well, you know, when it's serial, it's not actually that big of a deal. But what about when it's, uh, who am I going to marry? Where am I going to live? What am I going to do with my life? Uh, what is the the meaning of life? All these things in a contemporary world, there are you know a, an exploding number of options available to us. And that creates a kind of anxiety in us, um, which, uh, which I think is quite natural. Another way I've been thinking about this is, um, an, an image I'm still trying to work out of, of somebody being in dropped in the ocean, right? You're in the ocean, you're by yourself and your task is to pull yourself out. That's what the meaning of life is. You're trying to make something meaningful out of your life by pulling yourself out of this endless ocean, by rising above it. The problem is Uh, So the the good news is that you have no one constraining you, you have um, no one you're dependent upon, you just get to pull yourself out. The bad news is, is that no matter how hard you try, without some kind of foundation, you, it's, it's Sisyphus again, you're never actually going to rise out of the ocean, you might pull yourself up a little bit, but you're going to fall right back down. There has to be something you can cling on to. Um, and that, I think, is this, this experience that we have in, in life. And sometimes we feel it as boredom because uh, nothing seems to change and the options are endless. And so the options no longer matter. Sometimes it's uh, an anxiety, an angst that we feel. Sometimes it's desperation. Sometimes we get to a place where, in the book, I talk about a you know a posture a posture of affirmation where we where we think, you know what, I can do this. I'm just going to keep paddling, keep pushing, and eventually I'm going to rise out of the sea, and I will have arrived. Um, and then usually we wear ourselves out, and at a certain point we give up and return to despair, though.
0: Right. You you talk about the two groups of people, and they're not necessarily two to different groups of people. It might just be where we happen to be <laughs> at the time, yeah. uh, but, but affirming people like you were talking about, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep on paddling and, and, uh, you know, uh, great things await. Uh, uh, and, and then re- resignation or resigned people that, well, I might as well just, uh, you know, I might as well just let go and I, and start sinking because it's, it's never going to get any better. And so th- we're, I guess, sort of a societal uh, or maybe I should say a personal bipolar uh, mm. approach to, to life. Mm.
1: Right. Yeah. and And we move back and forth. There might be periods of time where the system seems to work. Uh, the system which tells you because you are your own, you get to to self-optimize continually and become the best version of yourself. And, and honestly, most of us have periods of our life where that seems to click, right? We're getting good grades or we're getting a promotion or we're getting a job or we're talking to somebody that we're interested in a romantic relationship. And we think, okay, I guess creating an image and projecting that image and, under, you know, creating my own values and all these things, I, I've been able to do it. It's working. I'm holding up my own existence. But inevitably, there's a break. Inevitably, and I, I often, because I do teach college, and so I'll often see that, whether it's, you know, uh, AP or honor students in high school, and they come in and they make that jump to college writing, and then all of a sudden they realize, I'm I'm not actually the best in the world or, or even among the elite. Like I have a lot to learn, which is of course the first step in learning is humility. But, um, but, but what they can experience it as is a, an existential crisis. Well, if I'm not the top of the class anymore, uh, maybe the system doesn't work. Maybe I'm not going to be able to make it in life. Maybe I'm not going to be able to compete against all these other students and all the other people in the world. And, and so they can slip back into that moment of, of despair, and I think it's remarkable. At, at at this, I mean, right now there's conversation going on about the the Great Resignation, right? Because people are resigning jobs, and um, I think there is a, a a connection, a connection there. But one advantage, or arguably disadvantage, that we have today is that you can get high quality entertainment for relatively cheap. Um, So you can be someone who's resigned, who says, I'm not going to try in life anymore. Like the system is rigged. I can't compete. I can't find meaning. It doesn't matter. But what I can do is I can binge watch or I can play video games or I can do fantasy football or I can, you know, pornography or there are things to um, titillate me, to distract me that are, again, really easily accessible. And that's not been true historically. Um, So I think it allows for, uh, you know, widespread resignation.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, of course, uh, as you said, that's been a topic of, of a lot of discussion. Why why aren't people working? Why are all these places, you know, you see all the job, jobs or jobs available, people wanted kind of signs. And, uh, you know, with, with COVID, the, the COVID restrictions of last year, 2020, everybody did stop. I mean, almost everybody. We know that there were some people you know, who never, who, who couldn't, uh, or society would crumble, um, or more, or more than it, or more than it did or has, <laughs> but, uh, but I think there, there is a sense in which, you know, Sisyphus stopped pushing the boulder for a while or the hamster got off the wheel and people were kind of reassessing and going, well, wait a minute, m- maybe, Maybe this thing I have been doing doesn't really matter. Maybe there, yeah. there was this, this, um, uh, things slowed down enough that reality kind of kicked in and, <laughs> uh, and, and resignation is what people, a lot of people turn to resignation in the sense of I'm resigned to this. And then resignation in the sense of I quit my job as a
1: result. Yeah. And I can't. And I don't know what's going to happen. I, I obviously am not a prophet, um, and I, I can't tell right now if that's going to turn into something good. I know. Um, I, I want to say his name's Derek Thompson at the Atlantic wrote an article about this recently about the Great Resignation, and and he he framed it as a positive thing because what it reflected was people recognizing that their their work situations were not actually good, and uh, that they don't have to to settle. And for me, what I've been thinking about is okay. So there's certainly a benefits aspect of this. There's a there's a pay aspect to this, but my my speculation—I have no evidence for this—but my speculation is that um, you know what you described. Let's think about what you described. Where these people are, uh, like so many of us, they're on autopilot. You finish high school, you go to college or don't go to college, you start your job, and you just keep moving and moving and moving. And there's rarely time for you to stop and rest and say, "Is this?" Is this good? What is this all for? I, I just keep thinking, you know, that, you know, talking heads, you know, um, what is this beautiful house? You know, uh, uh, this is not my beautiful wife. What is, what is this all about? Why are we doing this? And when you do have COVID, you get to stop. And I wonder if some of these people are looking at their jobs and, and saying, does this mean anything? Does this mean, so, okay, pay is important. Yeah. Okay. But also, does it, am I doing anything that, that matters to my community, to time and eternity, right? And I just think if we're honest about our market, there are a lot of careers that uh, are not, they're not meaningful. They're not actually good for our neighbor. Um, They're profitable, but, you know, vice is a very profitable thing. That doesn't mean it's good. And so I'm interested to see, I guess what I'm saying is I'm interested to see how this plays out, will, you know, uh, you know, salaries ra- uh, rise, and then people return to work, and things fundamentally change. Or will there be a movement of people saying, "Well, you know, I actually just fundamentally don't want to do this job because I don't think it's good for other people"?
0: Yeah, of course i I have no I have no great insight on where that will go. I, I feel like you know, there's a point where just sort of the the need for money to survive will have to kick in with a lot of people, but, uh I think that, that it could result in a positive shift. Um, uh, you know, I drove by, uh, there's this, uh, Donato's pizza place close to me that I drive by all along and they always, they have this sign up that says they're hiring for $9 an hour. And I always think, well, you're not going to hire anybody in this economy mm-hmm. at that. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, somebody's, nobody's going to get Donato's pizza after a while. So I don't know. It it may be that some of these businesses that have functioned solely through, I mean, essentially exploiting labor, I guess, uh, may may not survive because they just can't get anybody. That, that 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 economic model has suddenly become unsustainable uh, because it was reliant on such you know thin margins, which resulted in underpaying people. I'm not an economist, so I yeah. you know, there's there's a limit to. Uh, to how much my wild speculations on this uh, than this mean
1: you're listening to the cultural debris podcast
0: you do identify an interesting paradox i think or uh sort of the what you lay out brings up a paradox and that is that that we we as a society and as individuals uh, this atomizing of ourselves—that we are—we're demanding self-definition. That I—I I get to decide what I am, who I am, and uh, you know, pull myself out of the ocean, as it were. But at the same time, as as I am affirming this um, this radical individualism about myself, we have then turned to a constant need for the affirmation of others about that. And that's sort of what, where we, get, what we get with social media. And you talk a, a bit about, yeah. about social media. Why do I need to be affirmed? Why do you need to affirm my choices in life if I am, in fact, you know, a, a self-sovereign?
1: And the, and the difficulty or, or the, the central problem is that identity always assumes a witness. Identity doesn't work as a concept if there's only a single party, right? There's nothing to identify because there's only the one thing, right? There's only you. So identity always assumes there's someone against whom or towards whom you have to present yourself. And uh, I, I think inherent in that as well is the desire for affirmation. You don't just want someone to see you and identify you as uh, existing in the world. You want them to affirm your existence, to say it's a good thing that you exist. So I I, I think that basic drive uh, as a Christian, I think it's it's built into creation itself. It's part of how the un- existence works. Um, and I think that that is it's... it's at its core, a fundamental desire uh, for God's look upon us uh, with affirmation. But in uh, if you don't think about it in those terms, then you're getting affirmation from other people. And um, the problem with that is that that no matter who affirms you, it's never going to be enough, right? If, if you've ever had, uh, you know, if, when you were a younger uh, teenager or something, someone attractive or who you're into and they smile at you and you get this buzz of affirmation, hey, it's actually good that you exist. They seem to be interested in you and uh, maybe they would be willing to spend their lives with you and what further affirmation of your existence could you have? Uh, but even if you, even if that relationship were to work out, it it goes away the buzz goes away my my go-to here is is the great gatsby right we're here here over 100 years old and it's or not over 100 about 100 years old it's a very clear story of someone who thinks if i can just be with daisy then i will be affirmed and then he kisses her and his list of enchanted things is diminished by one uh, because it never works that way now what we've done is that we have social media has facilitated this deep craving we have for other people to observe us and to give us a, a word a, a, some kind of affirmation and acknowledgement. So the, the actual tools of social media are perfectly designed so that we can all be sort of our own publicists. And during the golden age of Hollywood, where we're all talking about our love lives, we're all posting you know promotional photos of us and in, in our life and describing things that we've done and our political views and our relationship status and all these things like we're rock stars because that gives us that kind of recognition but i also think this helps explain the the you know the emphasis upon um you know in in some sort of in some circles there's this desire for people to to recognize and affirm your life choices too right so it's not just you oh, know absolutely right because we want that that's 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 part of it and why it's so offensive when we when they don't for them it's, it's so offensive when people don't affirm that is because well this is my existence and that's often how i have heard people including friends just just describe it and i and i'm and i'm not belittling that because i i think that is how they experience it they they do experience it as if you don't affirm my lifestyle you are saying that my existence itself is unworthy or, uh, you know, unvaluable.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, if someone changes identities, whatever, in whatever way that they want to change identities, which, of course, that's very encouraged today. Yes. uh, that, That we, we find our true identity. We may, we may change it multiple times, but, but however it is that I change it, you uh, since, you know, you, since you follow me or know me, or, you know, know quote unquote me, uh, that you are now required to give me some, some way of affirming, um, uh, you know, whether you like or retweet or make a comment or, you know, thumbs up or hug emoji or whatever it is, you know, that pick, take your choice. Uh, um, right. You know, I, I'm always afraid that like instead of the hug emoji, I'm gonna give somebody like the laughing emoji and that they're gonna be <laughs> you know, horribly offended. Um
1: We're all one emoji away from being canceled.
0: We are, we are in this day and time. Uh and you know, then I didn't notice and somebody's uh somebody's aunt passed away and I've I've laughed at them or something. <laughs> you know, it's just it's more more anxiety it's you That's know right. af- affirmation anxiety did I, yeah. I affirm if i affirmed mistakenly but i am expected to affirm and yeah. if i don't affirm and you know the best the best thing that i can say is well the algorithm did not allow me to see that or i certainly would have <laughs> i would have affirmed it uh-huh. but if i don't affirm then i have as you said i've sort of i've i've rejected the validity of of their sovereign existence, and and it and it is it is this this curious paradox because uh, this radical individualism necessarily demands that others uh, affirm that sovereignty, uh, and and of course in, in doing so that necessarily undermines their sovereignty to decide whether they should like it or not you know
1: right so so on the one hand we're saying i i'm the only one who can define myself who can look inside myself by the true authentic me uh after doing hard work on myself and and then and and then also express that uh so it is i am radically autonomous in my identity formation creation and expression but then on the other hand i am completely dependent upon other people observing what i have created and expressed and affirming it, not just saying I see you, I, I recognize that you're there. Also, not just saying I see you, and uh, I believe that your 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 basic human rights should should not be violated. You should not be harmed or assaulted for for this identity, right? But also, I I think that identity is I'm I'm affirming that that identity is the correct identity. That it should be celebrated. That it should be validated. And I, I do want to stress this isn't. I mean, you you mentioned this earlier. Um, there are lots of ways that we create these identities. There are lots of ways that we rebrand ourselves and so for you know uh you know for many christians and for conservatives that you know we're often fixated on you know transgender and 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 i think those conversations are important too but what i'm trying to do in this book too is take a step back and say maybe there's lots of ways that we do this and they all assume this this problematic assumption which is that we have this radical choice to define ourselves
0: no, I think that's right. I, those, I, I think that that uh, something like the transgender movement, which certainly, I I would say without question applies to this, but but in a sense, um, and it does have its own unique issues. Uh, speaking from a you know, from a uh, God as creator and so forth, and those those issues. But that aside, uh, it, it's really. Just sort of the next level uh, of of this self definition that that we've had for some time. and uh, and that we all do. To one degree or another, uh, you know, some some people may may choose to identify as a person who wears bow ties consistently or something right. like that. And that that's that that's where they are. And then then maybe, you know, maybe that person who, who chose to wear bow ties, uh, you know, says, no, I'm only going to wear long ties now like Tucker Carlson did. And, you know, that's <laughs> he's he's no longer identifying with that. And uh, and, you know, you're expected to affirm or. Uh, or or deny that 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 is the proper thing to do whatever it is uh you know i'm 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 now um you know i'm now going to be a woodsman and only wear flannel yeah uh and that sort of thing so uh it, it, it is interesting and then and then like you said you know we all have sort of our our um our promotional photos that, that affirm this. And, uh, and you know, I, I'm not leaving myself out of this. I have, you know, I, I have my own, uh, my own online gigs, I guess that I, things that I like and kind of promote and identify myself with. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and other things that I go, Oh no, this is, this is bad. Now, of course, all, all of mine are, all of those decisions are are right and just, but uh, <laughs>
1: and, and pure pure motives and, pure, and yep.
0: completely purely motivated. But but we do we all do it uh, to one degree or another. Now uh, you know ha- having interests and uh, and even having identities. I, I think we all have to have that to some degree, right?
1: Right. No, absolutely. Is that a question?
0: Well, it can be. So what? What's a valid identity for me? Uh, you know, I could be—I uh, could be a mountain guy, I could be an outdoor guy, or I could be, you know, a, uh, a gourmand or something. Those th- those aren't morally bad or mm-hmm. good decisions. Um, so, what's wrong with me choosing my identity in in those ways?
1: Right. So here's how I think about it. I, I wanna I wanna ground it first. Um, and here I'm relying on, on Kierkegaard. Uh the the understanding that we live uh always before God, uh, moment by moment before God. And if that's true, then the way we can understand our identity is through his witness. So Uh, That basic desire, which we discussed before, to have a witness who can see us and affirm us, that happens. But when God sees us and affirms us, he sees us in all our complexity and all our contradictions and all our waverings. The fact that there is no static self, that we're always changing, our experiences are changing us, our moods are changing, our bodies are changing, the world is changing around us, that there isn't that that hard, clear, marketable, trademarkable uh, identity, (laughs) right? Like we're not Mickey Mouse. We can't just have, this is who we are and we can just be replicated endlessly. No, but we have, but because there is a a, a God who can see us completely rightly and knows us completely, um, that gives a ground to our identity. Now, practically, I think w- what this means is that when we experience this urge, this this deficit, when we experience this inadequacy, this sense that my being in the world, my presence, my existence, my identity, my brand in the world is insufficient. It's too small. It's not well defined. All those sorts of things. I think what we could do is we could say, well, th- those are th- those emotions, those feelings are created by a, a-, a bad anthropology that's. Promoted promoted. promoted in, in the world that I live in today. They're not fundamentally true. The reality is I am grounded. There is one who knows me rightly. Now that gives us the freedom to say, you know what? Being in the woods is beautiful. Like being a woodsman, if, if, if by being a woodsman, you mean that you go out and you enjoy creation, that's, you're just pursuing what is beautiful. And that's great. The difference is though, that you don't, uh, imagine that your life is somehow more stable, that your your identity and presence in the world is somehow realer or richer or fuller or more valid because you wear certain clothes, because you like certain music, because you're really into craft beer or whatever it might be. So you can enjoy the good things that are in the world and you should, but you enjoy them, I want to say you you rightly enjoy them. You, you the The priority and the function that they have in your life um, is, is changed, um, considerably.
0: Well, and that, that raises a, a, a question that I had jotted down here, which you, you talk about the idea of self-medication, that all of us self-medicate in one way or another. And, and by that you don't necessarily mean, uh, taking prescription or non-prescription medications, although it could mean that, uh, and often does, but, but that we find distractions, uh, th- that, that are essentially seeking to dull our mind from the oppressiveness of of the self sovereignty that I've I've either declared myself or just sort of been stuck with whether I whether I wanted it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, are there then good distractions? Is distraction? And maybe that word itself is problematic. Is distraction qua distraction unhealthy? Or can it be good?
1: Yes, it can be good. Yeah, I think so... The second half of this book was very difficult to write because I naturally, quite naturally wanted to give a five step plan for for <laughs> for saving the Western civilization or America or, or Oklahoma or something. Right. Or or just at least reordering my life so I can have the right mindset. But, you know, it, it's quickly apparent. That if my initial analysis in the first half of the book is correct, then then these problems are deeply embedded to the structures of our society, our values, our habits, and things. And and there's no silver bullet. There's no five-step plan for changing it. There's not a you know a, a mindset fix where it, well you know what if you just recognize that you belong to Christ instead of belonging to yourself then and change that mindset then everything goes away. And I'm just sorry that's just not the way it works because the rest of society is still gonna going to be in. Imp- Posing upon me and saying, "Well, Alan, you belong to yourself, so you need to get hustling on your career." Oh, Alan, you belong to yourself, so if you don't have a, a body that is constantly being optimized by through diet and exercise and all these things, then you're somehow lesser. You're not doing enough. Um, so those pressures are still going to exist and that, and that's difficult. That's a difficult thing to do when you're writing a book like this, because on the one hand, I believe we, we don't get to just throw up our hands, which would be resignation and say, well, we can't, that's it, we're stuck. On the other hand, I want to be realistic. I'm not going to lie to people and say, here's a five point solution. So where does that leave us? Well, one, one area that leaves us is in the area of, of coping. How do, how do we cope so if we if we're still gonna live with the stress of a society that treats us in inhuman ways and I believe that that is the case I don't like you know I don't think we're gonna change that radically anytime soon um how do we cope and where I ended up going to is a, a couple places because this is an explicitly Christian book and so I I, I went to a, both Ecclesiastes, but also the Psalms, which talk about um, God giving us wine to gladden the hearts of of man, and Ecclesiastes talks about delighting in the fruit of your labor and the wife of your youth. And um, what what's notable to me is that these are things that are that God has created. These are pleasures that God has created. That. Um, that remind us that we live in a comedy, not a tragedy, right? In Dante's sense and in the classical sense, we live in a comedy. That That, that our, our telos is ending in the marriage feast of the lamb, in a wedding, not in death and hopelessness. And sometimes I think, uh, well, not sometimes, we often forget that because it feels more Sisyphusian, right it feels like the tragedy where there's just we're just stuck and there are there are ways that that we can that we can cope that remind us this is not it so for me for example like a good a good sitcom not just any sitcom because there's some that are just bad but if, if 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 a show can really make me laugh sometimes what that's doing i think there's something not wholly about it, but but it's uh, it's a way of, of reorienting my perspective and reminding me, I know today was really hard. I know that there are lots of things that I should have done and I should be doing and I'm falling behind and I'm not optimizing. I'm not the best version of myself. But it's okay to laugh because God is sovereign. And, and this is not the end. These hard things, the suffering that I'm going through, this is not the final word. So it's similar, I would say, to the, the idea of a Sabbath rest. I mean, Christians ought to be known as a people who can legitimately rest because we don't feel like we have to hold ourselves and the entire universe up. And sometimes that resting includes things like really good food, which can help us cope, can make a life that is difficult and painful more tolerable. So I do think, yes, to answer your question, I think there are, there are healthy ways of, I wouldn't say distracting, but there are healthy healthy ways of of coping with this life. And then there are ways that I think cross a line into sin and self-destruction and harm to others that are that are that are forms of self-medicating that we need to uh, avoid.
0: So and we haven't really talked about this, uh, but rather than being you know, since we're talking about the you know five step solution to solve all these problems, the, the, the first step of that, of course, is recognizing our obligations to God and that, that hmm. we are we are God's creatures and that we are therefore we therefore belong to him and not to ourselves. That's that's sort of the starting point. Yep. Um, but then but then we have other belongings, right, where we we belong to others not just not it's not just you know me and jesus got our own thing going but
1: (laughs) it should be yeah
0: right right um but that i ultimately am also ideally part of a community to which i belong as well and and you make the you make the point it's sort of a, a I'll give you a a, a, a high compliment for me a Wendell Berry esque statement here. Hmm. Belonging necessitates limits, right? That's yeah. a, that that if we are going to belong, and the underlying underlying assumption of your book is that we do, that 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 necessitates limits on well everything. Just yeah. we're limited.
1: Yes. So, uh, and it's, it's, and this was the other difficult part of this book is that on the one hand, I want us to recognize that Sisyphusian boulder is not real. It's not legitimate. It's a cultural lie based on a misunderstanding of what it means to be human. So, that's a burden lifted off of us. Okay. So, we recognize that's a lie. That's nonsense. We're still going to be told it, and we have to be able to push back against that, but it's a lie. All right. That's, that's the good news. But the other part is well, it's also good news, but it's hard. It's hard news. It's a hard saying. And that is, we do have limits. We do have responsibilities. We do have burdens. And so I think when I'm advising students, for example, that are thinking about careers, uh, it's not enough for me to say, well, what do you want to do with your life? Right? It's not enough for me to say, well, what what are you good at? Or what can you make money at? Those are three good questions, but they're insufficient. If we don't belong to ourselves, they're insufficient. I have to also ask the student what is good for your community? What does your community need? and sometimes that means you know what they don't need another uh, dentist, but what they really need is uh, somebody who can teach in the public schools, which are a very difficult place to work and do good work or 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 maybe they need someone who's going to be a plumber and and is going to do good, honest work there and also volunteer to to mentor youth or any number of things but the you know the the point here is that you actually have to ask. What is it that others need? And that is a limit. And there might be something that you think, you know, I really want to pursue my career in music in Nashville or wherever. And you've got to say, sometimes some people in some situations are going to have to say, that's fun. That's great. But that's not what my community needs. And I know that I can help people right here. And I can make a living at it. As you said earlier, providing for a family, supporting yourself is important. So I can make a living at it. So that's what I need to do. It's also true with desires. Uh, I like to remind my students that, you know, especially before they get married, you know, uh, once you get married, you're still going to meet beautiful, interesting people. Uh, And if you don't go into marriage with that assumption, if you don't go into it knowing that um, desire is still going to remain there. And you're going to need to know what to do with it. You're going to need to acknowledge that just because you desire something doesn't mean that it's okay to say yes. And, and I, I think we I have to say that to my students and myself because there are more forces in society saying, actually, no, no, if you desire something, get it. I was eating some donuts last week or a donut. uh, And well, the the box wanted me to eat some because I closed the lid to this box. I'm like, okay, I'm done. I had it. That was a delicious donut. And it said, you deserve a donut. And I'm like, I I do. I feel like I do. Right. So, so there are all these things that are going to be hard. Uh, and I, what I like to tell my students is, it's not just that they're interesting, attractive people. You might actually meet someone who you think is a better, uh, you know, more compatible. They have more interests. They they like you more. You like them more. Uh, they're healthier. They're more enjoyable, fun, beautiful, whatever. Like it's it, it, in some you know mathematical world, this would be a, a mathematically superior fit. And you're still going to have to say, it's great that that person is wonderful, but that person is not mine. That person is not mine to enjoy. I'm married, and that is a good thing. And that's difficult. It's going to demand real sacrifice of things that you believe to be good, and in some cases would be good in another situation. So it's, I, I, I believe that if we take these truths to heart, on the one hand, we're this impossible burden, the Sisyphusian burden, uh, is lifted. And a right burden is placed upon us. There are right limits that help us live uh, so that we honor God, we live rightly as people, and we we love our neighbor. But that doesn't mean it's easy.
0: Yeah, I, I think I, was, I guess to continue on sort of a berry ish theme here, uh, society has has given us with this sort of infinite number of choices. You were talking about going down the cereal aisle. Um, and, and, and we, uh, we desire all of these different things. And yet even the, not simply the limit of responsibilities placed on just simply the limit of, I, I can't eat every box of cereal on the aisle. Right. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's, right. there, there is a physical limit. Yeah. Uh, I can, you know, I might give it my best shot, but eventually I'm going to start, uh, having my body is going to start having unhealthy reactions to that. Uh, uh yeah, we should say, um, but, but we do, we are constantly faced with different things that we desire and and choosing a path. and I think that this is, and you address this in the book about sort of the the, the fear of making the wrong choice, right? Mm. Because if I choose uh, this career, if I choose uh, this spouse, if I choose to have a child now rather than later or not at all, that, I'm stuck with that choice, right? Uh, yeah. To some degree, yeah. I'm stuck with that choice. Even later, if I decide to change my identity, mm-hmm. my life is is forever marked by the fact that I did that then and not something else. And I think that um, I think that that really is something that we struggle with, and uh, individually and as a society that simply understanding that these these blessings that I do have or can reasonably uh, obtain or attain, that those things, even though something else might seem better, that does not mean that what I have is not good, right? That that it cannot be simply enjoyed. And in fact, even though the other thing might be quote-unquote better in some way, that uh, I might actually be able, in my circumstances, to enjoy
1: this thing I have more than if I had the yes. better thing. That's right, and so I I talk about this in terms of contingency, and I think this is just a, a yeah a a, a very freeing concept when when you stop. Thinking in terms of consumption. When you stop thinking, everyone is available to me. Every life is available to me. Every every travel destination, every product is available to me. And you start saying, um, "This is what I am committed to," and uh, I'm going to accept the contingency of that. And by contingency, I mean that that uh, you know sometimes the person that you, that you were with, that you were married, is going to be sick. Sometimes they are going to be unhealthy. Sometimes, you know, they're they're gonna go through things. And so uh it's it's not controllable. It is out of your control. But when you stop demanding constant improvement and constantly, you know, upgrades and things like this, you can slow down and delight in the goodness of what what you what is before you. And that is, you know. This is you know, so I teach literature, and this is you know thinking about poetry. One of the things that happens over and over there's sort of a, a, a cycle uh, in poets, and you can I I like to think about Wordsworth um, writing in Lyrical Ballads of just saying you know part of my goal in writing these poems is to help def- defamiliarize you with the world because you see flowers and trees and and this and created world so often and you don't actually see them. Um, And in poetry, this happens over and over again, where poets recognize that part of their task is to help people see the beautiful and the good right before them that they won't see because they're so distracted by other things. And well, how do you do that? Well, one of the ways you do that is you stop looking elsewhere. And so when you accept that um, your children with all their flaws are your children and it's beautiful that they're your children and 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 not someone else's right and that you don't have somebody else's children you could really delight in them when you recognize uh this is my town this is where i live uh my neighborhood is is imperfect it's got all these quirks but i'm going to delight in its uniqueness um you can find um beauty and you can delight in that and as you say Uh, You know, we can think in these abstract terms, well, you know, in some objective way, I, you know, my life would be better if I lived in this city or, you know, if I were with this person or my kids were more like this or whatever, or if I had these talents. But we have gifts that God has given us right before us for us to delight in. And, And I think more often we we scorn the gifts God has given us because we think we know better.
0: I want to end on this because it was um, your use of this term. I I, it, I particularly liked it. The The idea of, of living with prodigality. Usually we use that term negatively, but you do not. What do you mean by living uh, with prodigality?
1: Yeah. So there's a kind of, 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 um, inefficient, um, uh, luxury, not luxury, or wastefulness um, that that we can have if we are not our own, if, if we are not our own but belong to Christ. Um, that means that we can do things like have a Sabbath rest, where we decide, although the world is telling me that I should be improving myself in all these measurable ways, that I should be getting ahead, shopping, um, working, um I can actually take one day off a week at least where I just stop, I cease from labor because I know that the world and my own life does not depend on me holding everything up well from from I think from a secular perspective, that's prodigal it's wasteful what do you do why are you wasting this time? you should be getting ahead this is not a growth mindset, right this is a failure mindset you're not going to get anywhere but Uh, if it's true that we belong to Christ, then we can do this thing that is prodigal, and it's prodigal in a good way. It's lavish. It's lavish. You're saying, I can sit back and relax. I can do things like... um you know, you know, there's a number of places in the Bible that I think are, are references. For one of them is, you know, the idea of the of of uh, my cup overfloweth. What an interesting image! Why would you want a cup overflowing? I actually kind of get irritated when my cup overflows. That's uh, I do this sometimes when my pour <laughs> my pour over coffee, and I'm like, oh great, now I have this big mess. Why is that a good image? Well, it's this idea of excess. It's this idea of excess, and that is the the universe that God has created. It is an excessive universe because it's a gift. It's an act of grace, and we can accept it in that way. Also, think of of uh, of uh, you know the the woman washing uh, Jesus's feet with the with the perfume, and Judas saying, "We should have sold that and given the money to the poor." Well, why was she doing? It was prodigal. It was wasteful in a secular perspective, but it was also um, because it was prodigal because it wasn't the most efficient use of money. Right. But it was an act of beauty and love and trust in God and honoring God. It was it was fulfilling and it was a way of of enacting this fact that they are not their own. Right. And that's that's, I think, key.
0: Yeah, I think of of Jesus feeding the five thousand and what what happens at the end? Well, they have yeah. all of these all of this food left over. Well, was Jesus just bad at <laughs> estimating, you know, how how much was going to be right. there? That's uh, good. I, you know, obviously not. He, and I think that that, um, that that does point to the fact, this whole idea of, you know, sort of, uh, efficiency versus prodigality that you talk about Judas, <laughs> Judas, uh, properly, uh, represents efficiency there. I always, I <laughs> always say efficiency is the enemy. Anytime we're, anytime we're too focused on efficiency, bad things are going to happen. Yep. Not that we, not that we should be. And I think you make this point purposefully inefficient, correct. But if efficiency as itself becomes our motivation, then then that's when we begin begin to approach life in a mechanistic way, yeah. and I think approach people in a mechanistic way. Yep. Um, you know, that's the that's sort of you know the horror stories we hear out of like Amazon shipping factory, oh my or, gosh. Uh, shipping plants and so forth. And, um, that, that these, these people are literally treated as co- just sort of cogs in a machine. Right. And yeah. they um, you're, you're not allowed to, to be a human. Um, I mean that, that, that takes us right back to that poor lion in the zoo, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> except, except they at least they don't even have the, the ability to, to pace back and forth in a, a in a leisurely way, maybe. Um, but, I I think that this idea of prodigality is is the key to a lot of of recognizing uh, that we we do have more than we think we do most Mm. of the time Um, and that we can also um, choose to live in a little more wanton way. I don't mean that morally, but Mm -hmm. just sort of in a in in a in a more lavish way, as you say, than and that's not beyond our means but rather no. a- accepting the limits of our means and our place and our belonging uh, but not but trusting in god's grace uh, that those things will be taken care of it's it's ultimately an act of faith
1: to do yes that. Right. Yeah, I mean, just think about giving to the poor and tithing, right? From a strictly you know efficiency you know perspective, well you should be saving that or investing it, right? Uh, but no, we're saying even when uh, even when I don't have a savings, I'm I believe that my my task, my calling is to to tithe and to give to those less fortunate. Well, that, yeah, that's an act of faith and it's prodigal. And in fact, I think some, you know, financial experts might come along and say, you know, you really should be saving this. You know, you can give to God after you've got a nice nest egg or something, but no, not as, as, as Christians, we take that step. We stop laboring, uh, and rest during the week we give, even though we don't have, you know, a, you know, an endowment or, you know, investments in the bank and whatever. Um, and it is, it is absolutely an act of faith.
0: Well, I want to point everyone to your new book. You are not your own, and there's much more in there than we had an opportunity to opportunity to discuss. I do know that one of the distractions uh, that that you have is one you share with me, and that is an an interest in basketball, particularly college basketball. Uh, I have noticed with some concern, however, that you you've have a bit of hostility towards my Kentucky Wildcats and. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like that we need to, that that's something that needs limits placed on it. <laughs> I
1: just, I just don't want you to recruit all the the top players. That's all I'm asking. It's just, just spread it around, just spread it. Hey, around. We, but we didn't even have a winning record last year. So. I, I do feel better after last year. Yes. As my, my, my <laughs> Baylor bears won men's national champions. Every time I mention Baylor, I have to say that in my classes, my students are sick of it, but yes. So now I do feel a little bit better. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I'm just sick of all the good recruits. It's insane. You and those other schools, I won't mention them, but you know, they that are well, your rivals. I
0: will. Uh, I will say that this year, all all will be set aright, um, and uh, and the the world shall return to its proper axis, uh, <laughs> as far as college basketball goes. <laughs> but I do, uh, and, and I'll just say, Kentucky likes to uh, likes to recruit with prodigality
1: <laughs> it is
0: excessive you're right it is
1: excessive. <laughs> that's absolutely right
0: well alan noble thank you very much for being on cultural debris i've enjoyed this very much
1: me too thank you, you for know. having me, me.